Hi, everybody. Um, I am doing an interview today with Reuven. Uh, Reuven is a full-time Python trainer. In a given year, he teaches courses at companies in the United States, Europe, Israel, India, and China, as well as to people around the world via his online courses. And the subject today is um, building a Python training business um, and you know, perhaps uh, building a technical training business in general. So Reuven, welcome and hello. Thank you, great to be here, great fun. And of course, I will not give them hints on how to build a Python training business because I don't want competition. It is how to build a training business, anything other than Python. But other than there that, happy to help. Um, so I was thinking maybe to start with just anecdotally, can you take us through your background, you know, education, training, like how did you come to be doing what you're doing? So, um, so basically I uh, studied computer science at MIT. Um, and while I was there, uh, I was in an internship program over the summer. Um, and I'd always like, even as a kid, I thought the idea of having my own business sounded like a fun thing. Um, but I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that people did it in the newspaper. And the internship at HP uh, was you know, fun and interesting. And I remember one summer uh, I was there and basically everyone cleared out. I was like, where'd everyone go? And this other guy, the only other person who did not leave uh, said, oh, they all went to a staff meeting. I said, so why, I'm, I'm a student. I know why I didn't go, why did you go? He said, I'm a contractor. I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's the best. <laughs> He's like, I don't have to go to meetings. I get paid more than everyone else. And I get to go from company to company every few months. And I sort of bring my bag of tricks with me. I was like, huh, that sounds really interesting. So when I decided to move to Israel, so I graduated from college, worked for HP then full-time, worked for Time Warner full-time doing their web stuff. Um, and when it came time to, I decided to move to Israel uh, in 95, they asked me what I was gonna be doing. I said, well, I've heard contracting is a great thing to do. I'm gonna do that. And I didn't really know again, what it meant other than I'll get clients and I'll do some programming. Like I'll keep doing sort of what I was doing before. And luckily the people at Time Warner said, well, we'll just sort of, would you mind having us as your first client? I said, mind, that's great. <laughs> so in some ways, Time Warner was like my investor in my consulting company. And so I arrived in Israel with a client, nothing else. I incorporated because that's what I had to do. And I started off doing some combination of web development, uh, Linux system administration, and especially I was doing Perl programming at the time. And I was also writing a column for Linux Journal. And pretty soon, within a year of that, uh, a company, Checkpoint, actually asked me, instead of doing the Pro, pro, pro program for us, would you teach us to do what you do? I was like, oh, sure, I guess. I'd never done that before, but I wasn't gonna tell them that. <laughs> um, and so I did that and that went well. And they invited me to keep coming back and doing some consulting there. And sort of over time that I was doing this interwoven, some programming, some consulting, some training. Um, and it was only, I then decided to do a PhD, which is happy to talk about at length because given that how long it took, but basically, um, when I was still working on my dissertation, um, I ran into someone who said, oh, you do training. While you're doing your dissertation, why do you do training through our training company, like this training company he was associated with? And then sort of good for us that we get a trainer. It's good for you that you don't have to worry about marketing. And that's when my eyes were open to how the world of training really works, that I was slowly but surely filling my schedule, not a week or two in advance, not a month or two in advance, but six months in advance. And companies were really interested, especially in terms of Python. And when I went to them, by the way, when I went to this training company, I was really deep into Ruby at the time, the Ruby programming language. And they said, well, we're not interested in Ruby, but send us your CV. And I did. And they said, oh, you know, Python. 
wow, we could really use that. And so this combination of training and Python and filling my schedule, and then I happened to run into someone who was training at the same company as I was one day, but he was not going through a training company. He was doing it on his own. And he told me how much he was making, which was more than twice what I was making. And that's when I realized, okay, the time has come for me to pull the plug on this going through a training company and go do it on my own. Mm. And so when I finished the PhD, I called the training company. I said, it's been very nice. You guys have been great to me, but time has come to go back on my own. And that was uh, about 10 years ago, a little less. And it, it has totally changed my life. Um, I'm happy to go into more details, but like I now focus on training, focus on training in Python, things in the Python ecosystem. My calendar is literally full every day, minus a handful for as long as I want in the future. Currently it's through April and we're recording in late November. And I love what I do. I get paid well for it. Uh, there's demand for it. I'm always looking for new things to do based on that. But um, it's really been a, a great decision for me and for my family. It's, so something interesting that I just wanted to call out for anyone listening now or um, uh, on YouTube, the idea that you're booking out gigs six months from now strikes me as kind of one of the like holy grail things that's hard for people go, going off on their own to do because everybody you know it's kind of like okay i want to diversify i don't just want to have one client what do i do do i have to narrow the scope of my offerings do i have to um you know so i guess another way to put it would be like somebody who's doing application development everybody wants that now you go out you do freelance application development um, for a while. And then when that runs its course, you're just looking for the next thing again. And it's always immediate. I don't think there's a lot of like app dev where people are looking at it and saying, yeah, I'd like some code written six months from now, but it sounds like a lot of people want training six months from now when the budgets line up or what have you. Um, so it, I, I just, I don't know if I even have a specific question, but, um, you know, is there anything more you want to say on that? Just because I found that so interesting. It's such a uh, challenging thing, I think, for a lot of people to be able to like book out their business in a diversified way. It's been a very pleasant surprise, equally pleasant and equally surprising. Um, I didn't expect it. Like I knew that, okay, I could book out like two, three months in advance, but it turns out that these really big companies, um, they, uh, so the way it works for training for them very often, like if I work with a small or medium-sized company, then they'll be like, okay, we have a group, they need training, can you do it in the next month or two? Uh, three or four, fine, we can deal with that. Like, we'll, we'll somehow like hold them down. But the big companies don't get training for one particular group. They get training that they know someone is gonna want. Hmm. And then they say, okay, we're gonna put on the calendar for, you know, we'll do this you know, intro Python once in March and once in June. And we figure that we'll have between 10 and 20 people show up uh, or sign up and then show up. And so they then put it in their internal catalog. And then if enough people sign up, the course happens. And if it does not, it doesn't. And so I'm basically betting that most of these courses will happen. And they're also betting that because they don't want to reschedule because it it's internal stuff. So really big companies that have this sort of marketplace of courses, they want to just keep it coming on a regular basis. And they've actually told me one of my clients has said they like to book things out a year in advance. So from their perspective, if I had to give them dates through November of 2022, they would be delighted. And hmm. I don't do that because I need the flexibility for other clients. And I don't know what my family is going to be doing in various points. Like I try to keep the summer open until the last moment so that we can make arrangements. But um, the fact that I can basically, I'll tell you even more, when the pandemic started, like in March of last year, and I had a few clients cancel on me. So one of my big clients for whom I've been teaching online for years using WebEx, I just called them up. I said, your people all work from home. You're going to keep doing training, right? They said, right. I said, fill the rest of my year. 
And so like 90% of last year was filled with one client because they needed it. They were going to pay, they, you know, their people were going to take courses and it was great. That's, um, that is pretty nice and pretty rare. I think that, um, you have something, it's probably part of having, I guess, a productized service that can be scheduled in this fashion. Um, so uh, like going back, I guess, to the general subject of going into and doing training, um, I know there's a lot of people in the community or people that follow my uh, writing at Dead Tech are interested in the subject of a niche. And it sounds like you have, you know, obviously a very specific one training in Python. Um, can you give more detail on like how you found that? Like you kind of touched on it briefly, but I know for a lot of people, there's a lot of angst that goes into this, like, oh man, well, maybe I should just do training in general and not narrow in on a specific tech, or, you know, maybe I should just do anything in this tech and not narrow in on training. Like, what was that process like of identifying and, and deciding finally to go into this niche? So it was, as with most things, um, sort of long and not totally planned. So as I mentioned before, like the first training was just a company saying, you program Perl. At the time it was Perl. Um, we want to program Perl. Can you teach us? So at that time I had to like throw together a whole course. And I think throw together is probably the, the right verb to use because it wasn't <laughs> that well planned. And each time I taught, I would sort of refine it and improve it. So I had like a base for doing that. Um, and then I did some, and then I did some Ruby training and Perl and Ruby are not that different from one another. At least like there's overlap of let's say 40%, 50%. So I was able to reuse some of that material and some of the examples that had gone well, I reused that. Um, and so when I moved from Perl to Ruby, I was able to then do some training and there was enough interest in me doing that training that that was fine. But it was always a sort of sideshow. It was always at most 20% of what I was doing. It mm. never dawned on me that there was a training industry. It never dawned on me that you could be a trainer full time. In fact, um, the training company I was working with asked me every so often, so you're doing development also, right? Because from their perspective, one of their sort of calling cards was our trainers all are full-time developers. Um, so if we're not gonna have someone who's just a trainer. We're gonna have someone who's doing development, they'll know it in the field. And I used to subscribe to that also. Like I used to say, oh, well, because, like, in order to be a good trainer, I have to also be a good developer mm. who's doing it every day. I'm no longer convinced of that for many things. Um, for example, for what I do, especially the core Python stuff, I think that's fine. Even for intro um, machine learning, that's fine. Um, I would not try to do DevOps because DevOps, I'm not going to fire up hundreds of servers doing things that I don't know. Like I, I'd have to invent uh, something to fire up so many servers for to actually learn, and that's just not worth it. And mm. big time machine also. And in terms of how I started like niching down then, so like I knew I liked doing the training. And so for a while I was saying, I will do training in Ruby, Postgres, Python. Even after I had sort of started doing mostly Python, I said, well, I don't want to limit myself. Right. And I found that it was just too much that keeping up with all of these languages, all these technologies um, and being able to offer them on a regular basis was just impossible for one person. Um, and so I love PostgreSQL, it's a fantastic database. If I needed to teach it, I could. I mean, I just did an SQL course online for my mailing list. Uh, like I, I offered a paid uh, webinar. This is about like six, eight months ago or something. And that worked well and that was good, but I'd have to refresh my memory on some of the more advanced stuff. Um, yeah, look, it also depends on what the niche is. It so happens that Python is now crazy, crazy popular and every company is trying to get Python people. So like companies that I've never heard of call me up and ask me to do training just because they need they need it. 
Um, if I had gone in another direction, let's say I'd gone in the Ruby direction, I'm guessing that I would have had to expand to other technologies because there's not enough demand for one person. Um, and Postgres, I probably could have done, I, I probably, there's a part of me that says, what if I'd gone in the database direction rather than the programming language direction? Mm -hmm. And I think that I probably could have pulled it off there as well because databases are so big. But I think I'm having more fun in the Python, Python world. So I, I think there's um, an interesting lesson here for people because I can sort of relate to this too. It sounds like there's some element of <clears throat> trial and error experimentation or just kind of getting your getting established as you go. I mean, I, I can personally relate in, I eventually wound up before starting hit subscribe, which is a different kind of story, um, uh, niching down more and more in, in this static analysis arena where I was doing like assessments of application portfolios and code bases for executives um, to help them make decisions. And that's like super specific, but I didn't sit down one day, I don't know, eight years ago and say like, I bet there's a demand for this. It was, you know, I happened to do it. Some people happened to like it. They happened to ask for more and kind of uh, proceeded from there. And it sounds like kind of a similar thing that you are sensing the market and then tuning based on what you have the bandwidth for, um, what makes the most sense. So is it a very like improvisational throwing word, but like, it's a very much trial and error process for you? Yeah, look, I, I try to sense the market as much as I can. So once I decided to go all in on the Python market, first of all, so my background is in web development. So I was convinced that all of my students were gonna be web developers and using Python for that. I could not have been more wrong. Um, like everyone's doing automated testing, they're doing data analysis. Um, like, and only, and it's funny, lately in the last year or two, people said, what, you don't do a web development course? We really like that. And I'm like, there hasn't been demand for it, but now that people are asking, that's like on my list to do. But one thing I would definitely do, like once I moved to the Python market and I still had a Git course and I just call Git part of Python, even though it's not because the same <laughs> sorts of people often want it. Um, and like, I can get away with saying I'm a Python trainer. Oh yeah, I do Git also. But I always try when I teach uh, to go around the room the first day and ask people not only for their names, but like I, I make the joke, like, so why are you here? Did your boss force you to take this course? Um, and so people go around, they tell me why they're taking the class. And that is my market research when we go around because they're telling me why they're there. And once I started to hear enough people say, I'm here because I'm gonna be using Python for data analysis. I was like, okay, I've heard this too much. I gotta get into this. And that's when I started diving into NumPy and Pandas and data analysis and machine learning. And it took me a good two or three years to feel confident enough with that to be able to teach it. Um, but I started the process early enough that I was ahead of the curve or at least with the curve. So always asking people why they're taking my class has given me good insights into where I should go next. So that's really interesting. I guess maybe that putting it in terms of experimentation or trial and error isn't, maybe it's accurate, but maybe it's more accurate to say it's responsiveness and treating your service delivery, also a piece of it being market research. Because I realized, for instance, yeah. that's how like over the course of time we've tuned the offerings of hit subscribe too, is, you know, the nature of what you're doing puts you in front of a lot of similar people who are interested in a similar thing when they're in front of you and then you listen to them, go figure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I do that, by the way, with my mailing list also. So like I've got a mailing list of now it's like 23,000 people or something that I write to most weeks. And so occasionally, like once every, I don't know, eight, 10 months, I'll say, hey, what are you interested in learning? Um, and that then either I can do a live course for them or I can just sort of know which direction to go in, or I can know what my professional you know, direction should be. Um, so I guess 
I guess I now have enough of a sample size that I can talk to on a regular basis that I need to do less experimentation. At the beginning, it was definitely experimentation. Like, I don't know what people want. I don't know how it should work. Also, I try sometimes better than others, but to pay attention in class to what's interesting to people, what's hard for people, um, and then tune it accordingly. So I used to like, I used to just brush over certain or gloss over certain when I discovered people were having trouble with it, I would go into it deeper. And that's when I discovered, oh, wow, no one understands this, but it's really crucial. Mm. Um, I even had a great experience just last week. So I was doing, oh, I'll sort of a two-part story here. So I was teaching my intro Python class, um, which is you know, was sort of my bread and butter. Um, and people would come up to me, not just once, but several times after the first day and say, listen, this is great, but we have no idea what's flying. Like this, this was too hard for us because we don't have a programming background. I say, oh, well, like, you know, bad news. Today was the easy day. And so um, then what I did was I created my Python for non-programmers class based on that. And so that's been a lot of experimentation to figure out how much can I get away with teaching them without overwhelming them. And so just last week I was teaching it. And as I always do, I gave them time to do an exercise and I waited for them to say that they were done or I finally pulled the plug. I said, okay, like, let's go over this together. And even with what I call a strategy session in the middle, like telling them sort of what to do, which from a programmer's perspective is basically spoon feeding it, but they like, they don't know, they don't know what to do with this. Um, and so they said to me, look, even with your strategy session, it's too much, we can't do this. And this is the first time people really spoke up. And I said, okay, let's try something, let's experiment. Let's do, instead of pair programming, you guys dictate to me, everyone turn you know, unmute your mics and let's just have you know, everyone tell me what to type. It was <laughs> phenomenal, phenomenal. First of all, <laughs> they felt like they were really participating in this very active, you know, crowdsourcing group dynamic thing. And everyone had different ideas and everyone had different strengths and weaknesses. And I got to see, first of all, so they got a feeling of accomplishment. We actually got it done. I was able to direct them at a very micro focused level as opposed to very macro. I also got to see where their confusion was, which I normally wouldn't have seen. So. And this is something I'm definitely going to do in the future with my non-programmers class. And I'm even tempted to try it with my regular class because it was so successful. So you always have to have some experimentation there, but with me, it's less the marketing and more the technique in class. Gotcha. That's um, yeah. I'm trying to think like if uh, people like, let's assume people are interested potentially in doing this, listening in, um, you know, I can tell that you're, uh, you've gotten good at like, you know, vibing off of the feedback and iterating and you genuinely like enjoy um, doing the teaching and the training aspect of this. And that kind of makes me wonder, like, if you think, you know, maybe you don't have a background in doing training, like how would somebody listening know if training might be a fit for them? Like, is there an easy way to discover that through trial and error, kind of like a low friction way? Um, you know, like, what would you say to somebody who thinks, hey, this might be a good side hustle, but I'm not sure if I'd enjoy this or I'm not sure if this is for me? So start off, start off slow, right? Start off slow and start doing it for free. So like no one's going to get upset with you if you charge them. So give talks at conferences, give webinars, mm -hmm. um, right? And so, so if you, if you get, and, and I find that speaking in person uh, gives you a much better sense. You can read the room better. You can, you know, you see, are they laughing at your jokes? Are you, are they booing you? I'm mean, booing you. It's never happened to me, but like, come on. <laughs> if they're booing you, not a good fit. Um, but, but, um, but like, uh, try it, see how you like it. And I still remember very clearly when I was at HP and when I had to give a presentation as a student, I was terrible at it. And I walked away saying, boy, I hate speaking in public. 
And no, I just wasn't prepared. I didn't know what I was doing. And now speaking in public is like a great fun thing for me. Like it, like it totally doesn't phase me to get up in front of like the PyCon. I was in front of like a thousand people giving my talk, um, you know, without notes, just with my slides. And you know, it, I had the time of my life. Um, so it, it takes time to get there, but start off doing it in a small, low friction, low pressure group without money and you will get better, right? So I talk to people who are like gonna give a talk at a conference. They're like, well, I've now read through it 10 times and I've then done a practice, I practiced it 10 times. So I think I'm ready to do it on stage. And that's what you have to do when you start off. But when you really do it a lot, you don't have to do that. It's like anything else, right? It's like, I, I, I always say that learning a programming language is like learning a foreign language, that there are a lot of analogies there. And maybe that's true also for getting up and speaking in front of a group or training, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sort of you have to learn the ropes and little by little you'll get better, but not being perfect doesn't mean you're ineffective. That's the other thing. There've been times when I was like, wow, this went really poorly. And actually they thought it was fine. So I'm not gonna like <laughs> disabuse them of their their, their wrongness, but like, <laughs> uh, so yeah. But so it sounds it, like, it. Uh, you know, uh, maybe something relatively low stakes, like go speak at a local user group or some local user groups, uh, something along those lines would, would get their feet wet well. That's right, that's right. And everyone has their own style, right? Like, so there's some people who are really into slides and they'll like make these gorgeous, beautiful slides. I've never been like that. I don't have that artistic talent. That's not my thing. I usually, when I'm speaking, when I'm like, so I type really fast and I like doing things interactively. So I don't use slides when I teach. I just type into a coding notebook and then mm. I share that uh, with my students. At conferences, I actually do slides just so I can sort of get the pace faster. Um, but there are people who do live coding at conferences, right? The more of these things you go to also, the more variety you'll see in how people present. And you can sort of steal ideas, this from this person, this from that person, and start to make your own style. Oh, that makes sense. Um, so if people do get into it. Like, I think a lot of people that are going to listen to this have... Um, application development background. So it's not hard if, if you write software as an employee for a company to imagine probably what it's like to be a freelancer to some extent, you know, that also writes code. But like, um, what is it like running a training business versus a more project focused thing like custom app dev where you're working for a client for months or whatever? Like, what are some of the differences there that people, you know, maybe wouldn't expect? Or what is it like for you versus them? You know, think of a good example being, you know, filling up your dance card months ahead of time. But are there other things like that that make this type of business different? By the way, you just reminded me like that's a, uh, before I get into this. So if you are working at a company, take advantage of that and try doing training there, right? Say, oh, hey, yeah. I learned this sort of thing. Can, can I get like, can I give a session here? Even if you're a consultant, when I was consulting the companies, I would say, you know, I've seen a lot of people have this problem. If I can give a talk about this, I can like, you know, kill a lot of birds with one stone as it were, and, you know, uh, you know, uh, teach a lot of people. Yeah. And if they're into that, that's a great way, like again, sort of low stakes way to, to do it. In terms of how it's different, one of the biggest differences, and again, a surprise to me, was that when you're a developer, even as a consultant, if, if you're like, a, a, a technical developer consultant, you are working with the CTO, you're working with the team leader, you're working with someone in the development side of things. And so they have their budget and they have their schedule. And so anything you try to propose to them is going to be comparing you with having, excuse me, with having other employees, whether it's cost, whether it's schedule. 
But when you're doing training, you are not working with those people at all. The people who are holding the purse strings are the training department, or sometimes like they have different names for it. I call the training manager, it's like to be general than generic, but it can be the, you know, uh, human resources. It can be, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, and their budget is wildly different because they are used to paying a lot of money to training companies, which have salespeople and marketing people and accounting people and so forth. So if you as an individual can go in there and charge what a full company does, wow, like <laughs> that's a huge difference. <laughs> and the development people will never know and will never guess how much you're charging because it never occurs to them that someone in the company could be paid more than the developers. Interesting. Um, where, whereas like, think of it from the training manager's perspective. Let's say that your training will make the developers, let's call it 10% more effective. All right. And let's say you've got 20 developers, each of whom are making $100,000 a year. Let's just like keep the, the numbers. So that's $2 million a year there. All right. And like that they're spending on these developers, make them 10% more effective. Well, that's going to be $200,000. So any price you give them under $200,000 is a big win in their book because they will be saving money. And sure. so when you come in and say, I'm going to do this for $30,000, they're like, sold. <laughs> and, and if you told this to developers, I can charge $30,000 for a four-day course, they'd be like, wait, wait, how is that possible? Right? Like, because we were such great developers. Yeah, but you're doing it at scale. And that's, that's where it starts to change. Also, in theory, you're really good at training, like, you know, Hopefully you're good at training and over time you get better. And so you are really going to improve people's efficiency. This guy once gave me a ride to the train station from one of my clients. And he said, I just want you to know this topic that you taught us like, you know, a few months ago, we've reduced our code by 70% as a result of using that system. Wow. So, wow. <laughs> I did not expect that, but that's like, they got their money's worth for that course, for sure. So that's an interesting <clears throat> takeaway potentially too, is that this from a pricing perspective, because I know there's a lot of folks that are interested in pricing theory other than, you know, billing people by the hour. It sounds like training is, it's, it's doable, obviously to set a flat rate, you know, a day rate or what have you, but also potentially to value price, like the back of the napkin math you just did there, I think is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, imagine that I can help you realize this amount of additional efficiency. So I think it's worth X. Um, so that is, you know, interesting. It, it, do you find that it's easier to market and have a sales process as well for, for this type of business? This has been my chief failing. I have been terrible, but terrible at marketing myself. I mean, that is to say I have, I have this mailing list, I have online sales and everything. And I sort of figured that the B2C would bleed into the B2B. That is to say, people would get my mailing list, say, wow, this Ruben guy is amazing. We got to bring him, bring him into our company. And then I would be flooded with offers. Hmm crickets <laughs> like <laughs> crickets it, because the developers are not in touch with the training manager like i'm always have to i always have to remember that i'm talking to the training manager like one of my clients once a week easily even so yeah. it's like five minutes or what's that message and she has to introduce herself to the developers every time we do a course because they have no idea who she is right so the notion that a developer will draw a line between i'm getting cool email i'd like to have him come i'll call the training manager whoa 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 he doesn't even know the training manager's name or her mm. phone extension or know how this works. He's not, like, they're just not going to do that. So I've tried sometimes reaching out to companies in various ways. I've tried emailing them. I've tried LinkedIn. I've been miserably, miserably bad at it. Um, the good news is 
that people change jobs very often in high tech and people talk in high tech. And so it took a few years of sort of building up a reputation, but I now get a ton of calls from companies interested in me doing training for them. Um, it's also helpful that I'm in Israel, which is a very small country with a big high tech footprint and people talk a lot. So whenever someone calls, I'll say, where did you hear about me? And very often I'd say like more than two thirds of the time, it's, well, I used to work at company X and we had you there. And then I moved to company Y and I told my boss, we should have you come in. So there that seems to happen a bit. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I, I still, this is one of the things that I'm really struggling with. How do I get um, to people? Like, how do, how do I get to market myself better? The good news is that like, it's working. <laughs> like I have work. Um, the bad news is that it would be nice to be able to do sort of, you know, have more of a choice of clients. It would be nice to have like maybe some higher revenue clients, but that's starting. I mean, I just got email uh, two months ago from a company that's now going to buy some of my video courses. And then after that, they might bring me in to do some online, you know, in-person training. And that was totally out of the blue. So that was like, you know, that was nice. Also realize that the sales cycle for big companies is very very, very long. So I was in touch with a company in July of last year. I'm doing my first training for them in two weeks. So that's 18 months, 18 months, folks, from like initial email contact to yes, it's going to happen. And it's not that we were negotiating so hard. It's just, they're not going to push. I would email them every six weeks and say, hey, is there anything new? Nope, we'll let you know. <laughs> so, so you have to be patient and you have to have enough of a runway and enough, um, you know, uh, um, other stuff going on. So that's not going to be a, a problem. You mentioned B2B and B2C, like, um, so can you talk a little bit about um, the B2B and B2C training? Like, are you doing both of those things? How do they relate? So there's an element where you have a mailing list going out to people, but are you offering like, um, uh, to just the general public of developers courses and things? And, you know, if so, like, what's the interplay between those two lines of business like? So, um, yeah, I basically running two businesses. One of them is my main business, which is the B2B business, which is the corporate training, which, as I said, is like filled up and everything. That's good. Um, a few years ago, I want to say four years ago, five years ago, I said, you know what, the time has come for me to start recording some of these courses to try to sell them to the general public. Um, and so I started doing that and I now have, I believe not all, but virtually all of my intro Python course is now available as uh, like video courses. Um, about two thirds of my advanced Python courses available as video courses. And those are sold to my mailing list. Those are sold on the web. Um, I mean, and they sell okay. I've been amazing at selling, but I, they're doing okay. I'm looking at doing some new courses for next year. I can tell you more about that in a little bit. Um, and those are sort of, as I said, separate businesses. Um, again, I expected there would be more interplay between them, but there has not been. However, I have found in the last, say, two years that having the video courses has given me more um, raw material to work with. Mm -hmm. So that is to say, if a company calls me up and says, we'd like to have you train, and I say, well, I'm not available for five, six months, they say, oh, is there anything else? I say, well, actually, I do have these video courses that you can do. And um, you, know, you can download those. And if you want, we can do live Q&A sessions that some of my clients like to do. And that's like sort of the best of both worlds. And some of them lap that up. They love that, right? So they'll, they'll, um, so they'll do that. 
Um, and so it allows, it, like, I'm using the B2C stuff in the B2B realm, but that's actually been useful to have, uh, either for scheduling or for pricing or for, for whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm also, uh, yeah, look, there's definitely some interplay there. The fact that it's me and it's the same material, more or less, gives me a chance to sort of, I can also say when I tell, sell these B2C courses, listen, um, these have been battle tested, right? I've been teaching at like Fortune 500 companies the last 10 years, and you're getting the benefit of my experience in these video courses. Um, I mean, I had one corporate client where they actually wanted the video courses and not the in-person. I've been teaching there in person for a few years. And they said, oh no, we're into self-paced study now. Like the CEO said, self-paced study, that's the way to do it courses. And then we're going to do a Q&A session. And uh, that'll be that. So I showed up <laughs> for the Q&A session, discovered no one had watched the videos. Uh, <laughs> um, and then they said, huh, this is not working as well. We thought, okay, we will give them a deadline. We'll tell them what days they have to watch which videos by. And then we had the Q&A session and a few more of them would watch the videos. No, that's not working. So we came up with the perfect solution, which is they watch the videos while I'm sitting in the room. That's right. They paid me to sit there and basically be my own TA. Um, so everyone is on <laughs> headphones watching me lecture. And then I stop them two or three times a day. We do like Q and A sessions. Um, it was absurd and madness, but um, some of the people actually said that they liked it because they could rewind things they weren't inhibited. So uh, that's the kind of interplay. It's interplay of product, but not of marketing and not of sales. So it's an efficiency. It's not like, um... It's almost that it, I wouldn't say it doesn't require any extra work, but like there's so much um, overlap between what you're doing in each space that it's, it sounds like it's, it's relatively easy for you to do that and have um, an interest in both spaces. Is that right? Look, yeah, look, the video courses, the, the B2C stuff, the challenges are different. One of them is just takes time to record a video course. I do not, 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 not have super high quality videos. Like it's the content that's good quality. Uh, the videos, some people have said you should redo them. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And they take a long time to do. Um, but the marketing is like tremendously different, right? So I am ranked this mailing list. Now, also every time I finish corporate training, I invite them to join my mailing list. So I definitely have people who have joined that and then sometimes mm -hmm. they'll buy some things, but it's not in huge numbers. But in part, that's just sort of keep it warm so that they'll know. And in fact, when I just taught, I taught at a company two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and um, the manager introduced me there by saying, oh, and you should get on his mailing list. It's really good. So he remembered who I was, not just because I'd been there a few years before, but because he, he's getting a weekly reminder of who I am and what I'm doing. So that, that seems to help, even though I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of it. So it sounds like, the long game is, you know, the, the two interests might start to, you know, I guess, boost one another. Yeah, just as you become, you know, ubiquitous in the space uh, as well. I'll, um, I'll, but I'll, speaking of, I'll just, I'll just respond to that briefly because it's, uh, so about three years ago, well, let's see, 2019, we still had PyCon in person. So 2018, I went to PyCon in the US and it was a very humbling experience. That basically here I was at the, like the world's biggest Python conference, and really no one knew who I was. And in Israel, everyone in the Python world knew who I was. So I was like, "Huh, the world's a little bigger than Israel." What do you know? Who knew? Um, <laughs> but I see now, over time, as I've started writing more and selling more and being more active on Twitter and being more active on YouTube, a growing number of people. Now it's all online, right? So it's hard for me to measure because we haven't had conferences in person. People know who I am. 
Um, and so it's possible in the space of a few years to really increase your profile. And I'm curious to see at PyCon this coming year when I'll not only be there, but have a booth um, to see how many people will come up to me and say, I know what you're doing. I like what you're doing. And if that might grease the wheels of sales to get into their companies, it might, it might. That's interesting. Um, so I guess um, I'm trying to channel what uh, I imagine folks would want to know, but um, let's say that you make the decision, you know, you go talk at user groups, you start to enjoy what you're doing and you want to pursue a training-based business. Um, you had mentioned um, subcontracting for a training organization. If you could go back and do it over, would you recommend that people listening do what you did there? Or do you think they should just bypass that and go straight to doing it for themselves? So of course, as, as usual, there's no super clear answer. I'll, I'll describe a little more of what I did because it, 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 it'll clarify why I did things the way I did. Um, so I was brought into, so the, the training company I worked with in Israel was called John Bryce. By the way, funny story, why is it called John Bryce? Because at the time they started up, no one thought Israelis had any technical acumen. So this Israeli group of people chose the least Jewish, least Israeli name they could find to name their company. <laughs> because that way people would trust that they actually knew what they were talking about with computers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was like a good 30 years ago or so. It's pretty, it pretty funny. But I didn't start working with them. I started working with a sister company of theirs called High Tech College. So I was brought into High Tech College. I taught with them. And one day I'm told, oh, by the way, High Tech College is merging into John Bryce because why should we have these two divisions that do the same thing under the same umbrella company? I was like, okay, fine. And the thing is, they never signed me, not at High Tech College and not John Bryce on a non-compete, which is standard operating procedure for a training company. Why? Because every training company, they're not stupid. They know that every trainer is going to make a list of all the companies they've worked for. They're going to quit and call those companies the next day and say, hey, you can get the same person just for half the price or two-thirds of the price, whatever. Right. Um, so, be, so when I called them to say, I'm going to go back to doing stuff on my own, they said, oh, and what sort of non-compete did we sign you on? I said, none. And the other end of the phone was like, oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, the fact is I didn't have to be that aggressive because as it turns out, these companies called me and they were like, oh, we understand you're not with John Bryce anymore. I said, right, I'm on my own. And they said, okay, fine, we'll work with you. So again, I didn't really have to market, I marketed myself to one company, but that was it. And the rest sort of came in that aftermath. Um, so did, in my particular case, it could not have worked out better. In right. my particular case, working for a training company, building up my chops, having them sort of introduce me to the world and then going on my own, perfect. So if you can find a training company that's willing not to sign you on an NDA, first of all, where did you hear of them? And second of all, like, go for it. But mo because they will take half the money or more, right? So I know now that in the US, you can get between six and $10,000 per day doing training. Mm -hmm. But a training company will take between half and two thirds of that. So like it's a, you know, on the one hand, they're giving you, they're doing the marketing, which is worth a lot. As I said, I've been trying to do marketing. I've been, I've been so great at it, right? So, so it is worth a lot that they're offering that. At the same time, what you can get training is way more than they're paying. So look, if you're in a field, it depends also on the, on the non-compete they, they want to sign you on. If they sign you on a non-compete as like, I was doing a lot of work in China for a while um, and the training company I was with there said, we want to sign you a non-compete that says you will not work with any client of ours for the next three years. And given that they defined any client of ours as anyone on their mailing list, 
It's like, okay, you gotta be kidding me. Like that's shutting me out of the market. I said, no way. So we reached another deal, which in the end, like didn't matter anyway. But like, um, if it's, it depends on how draconian the, the non-compete is. Uh, it mm -hmm. can be a great way to get your feet in the water. The other thing is you don't have to go all in on training all at once. You can say, you know what? I'm gonna do consulting. Like if you're an app developer of some sort, you say, I'm gonna start offering this service and telling my clients about it. And some of them might take you up on it. And then you can do two days of training a month, then five days of training a month, and little by little, ratchet it up and down as per your, your preference. And if you see that it's going nowhere, go to a training company and say, listen, I've been doing training now for a little while. And they will, I spoke to one in the US about three, four years ago, and they wanted me to do like a screen, screen test, like demonstrate that I knew what I was doing in training. So having a little bit of experience before you go to them is probably a good idea regardless. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a clear cut thing. That um, something just popped into my head as you were talking mm -hmm. about that. As I remember in my consulting travels when I would do management consulting in the software world, um, a lot of times training recommendations would follow in the wake of a consultant like me. So my first thought was like, oh, if, if I had wanted to do more training, you know, if I go in and say, hey, you have a lot of legacy code here that's not covered by test, this is risky to deploy. Um, you should put some unit testing in place and continuous integrations and practices. Well, the next thing they do is they turn around and um, ask me, you know, hey, can you teach us to do this or something? So I wonder if there isn't a world where you could hook on, you know, with like a consulting firm that leaves training in the wake. It's just kind of a, an idea that popped into my head. Maybe. What do you think about Maybe. that? I think it's interesting. If you can pull it off, that would be great. My only concern would be once again, sort of the department that would be hiring you. That like, mm. there's this company, I, I, I'll never forget it. Like I was brought to this company in Tel Aviv, like top floor of a fancy building with the most spectacular view of the city end of the Mediterranean. And they sell systems to high-speed traders on Wall Street. And they show me their super incredibly fancy coffee machine. And they're going on and on about how successful they are. And they say to me, so what's it going to cost to fix our Postgres database? I was like, well, I don't know. It's like, you know, $2,000 a day. What? What? Do you know how many developers we can get if we paid that for a month? I was like, huh. So, so even these incredibly wealthy companies that um, like could afford it, they have this visceral reaction to paying so much as it were for developers. And because mm -hmm. trainers are paid more than developers, you might run into trouble. But if the consulting company is being brought in through the COO, the you know, or something, or the CEO, you might be able to do it. Interesting. That's a, a very subtle point, but I, I take your point because, yeah, coming in through the app dev organization, you're going to be getting compared to the developers. But but you might be able to play it a slightly different way. You might be able to say, and again, it sort of depends on your relationship with the company, with the, like with everything, but. What sometimes happens is like someone will see me at a conference and say, I'd like to bring you in to do training. And I say, okay, what you have to do is we have to have like a conference call, you and me and the training manager. And so the development person will introduce you to the training manager. We don't have to talk about money at all. And the training manager is like, oh, you're recommending this person come in and be a supplier? Great, let's talk. And then I talk separately with the training manager, give my pricing, and then they figure out all the budget, the internal stuff. Because the training manager, I always see them as an investment manager. They have a pot of money to put into training to make the company more efficient. Mm. And so their budget is completely separate from the development budget and they don't have to tell them about it typically. So that, that might work out, that, that might actually do okay, it depends. Hmm. Um, 
So I'm trying to think of, um, I guess the, the, there are a couple of questions as we kind of hit towards the hour here that I think people would be wondering about um, just in terms of what your life is like. So the first one is um, you had mentioned originally a belief potentially that you needed to always like be you know, uh, doing some development in order to be able to train and then you moved away from that. Um, so I think a lot of people will be wondering like, if, especially if they have an application development history, you know, I'm a .NET programmer or something, I wanna become a .NET trainer. If you do that and you go full-time and you're not taking on custom projects anymore, like how do you keep up with the developments on that stack? Like how do you maintain your abil ability to uh, train people in it? So, First of all, um, the fact that I'm teaching core Python stuff, like basic Python stuff, and that's my bread and butter, makes it very easy because the changes, like I just need to follow the changes in each version of the language as they come out. And those tend to happen slowly. And most of my students don't care about like all these things. And if I teach it to them a few months later, eh, not so bad. But like I can keep up, that's a very easy pace to keep up on. I can even say, look, I'm showing you that I'm keeping up on what's going on there. Um, so, I mean, with the machine learning stuff, that's been more of a challenge just because it's sort of more to learn. And I'm not an expert in machine learning, excuse me, but I can teach an intro course in it. And, but there I just try to be very honest with people. But I also say to people, so something I learned, um, uh, a very nice sort of distinction that I learned when I was doing, so my PhD is in education or technology in education. Um, so one of the things we learned there is there's a distinction between content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. The content knowledge is the actual thing itself. And pedagogical content knowledge is, do you know how to teach it well? Mm. And we all can point to people who are great experts in their field and have no idea how to explain what they do, right? You probably had university professors who are sort of like that. Brilliant, great researchers, <laughs> couldn't talk their way out of a paper bag, right? So, so in many ways, what these companies are looking for is not the most genius programmer ever, but the person who can um, uh, shorten the or flatten the learning curve for their people. And that's the advantage that you're offering them as a trainer, not mm. programming brilliance necessarily. That said, if you do your job right as a trainer, then you're always going to be reading and learning new stuff. Like I just, I, I mean, I do training for O'Reilly online um, and I helped them with some stuff and they said, what can we get you? I said, well, there are these three books that I would really like to see. Um, and you can be sure I'm going to be looking at them before I do some like training in the next week or two on subjects that I'm not as firm about. And so it, it means, by the way, like before I teach something that I, I don't know as well, I spend like a week or two really like sweating and trying to make sure that I can explain it well so it comes off smoothly. Um, but, uh, but you don't have to be. Oh, the other thing is I talk to people all the time, right? My students are asking me questions. And first of all, I enjoy that. But second of all, that pushes me to learn. I'm constantly telling my students, if you ask me a question, I don't know the answer, that's great, right? And I will research it and I will come back to you and I'll give you an answer. But then I add that to my, the content that I know. And sometimes it even brings me in a whole new direction or like a half day topic just because of one question. So I'm constantly evolving what I know and what I teach and how I teach based on feedback from students. And that again, gives me the perspective uh, the consultants get, think of it, you speak to lots, lots of clients, you, you have this um, variety of inputs that most people don't have. So I have that from questions from people who don't understand Python and can thus stay a bit of ahead of the curve. Well, that makes sense. Um, the interesting, like, you know, if I imagine somebody who's kind of like iterating towards a career in training, you might say like, well, 
what aspect of this stack might be a little more evergreen is also kind of needed knowledge. Uh, yeah, it strikes me when you were talking about like if you're teaching language core fundamentals, like that's not going to change all that often versus if you're trying to keep up with some like particular framework that's always pressured to add new features. Um, <clears throat> so like uh, breaking yeah. down the material and thinking of the nuance of like what kind of knowledge and how often does it change is, is interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that, but it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, I'm sort of lucky that if I were doing uh, like one of the newfangled JavaScript front end frameworks, I'd be working way harder to keep up with it. And also probably like switching frameworks every two years, right? Because <laughs> like the, 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 the latest and greatest changes uh, over time. And so, um, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, people teach language, people teach like intro statistics, something like that, where these are fundamental ideas that are not changing so fast that you, you, can, you can have a decent career at it. That might be worth, you know, for anyone listening, thinking about, I would say, like, as you evolve into your niche, that you almost add a column in your decision-making matrix, like, how likely am I going to be able to sell this training, you know, I don't want to say with a minimum of effort, but like, where I'm not on this, like, hamster wheel, you know, is this a sort of durable technology, or does it seem like this is going to go away in favor of something else later? Right, I, I, I totally agree. Um, what about work-life balance, you know, is, um, what's that like for you? Is it easy to maintain work-life balance or does the need to keep up along with the service delivery tend to lead to long hours? So I'm better than I used to be way, way better than I used to be. Um, cause when I was dealing with like uh, consulting work and development work. First of all, it was like all hours of the day and night. And like, I, first of all, I would just be like working really hard to keep clients and get clients. And I was super nervous that I had holes in my schedule. What am I going to do? It was really very hard. Um, and the fact that I'm able to like schedule stuff out far in advance, that's great. Um, so I don't have to like get on that, you know, as you call it, like hamster wheel of, of marketing at least all the time. So that's pretty sad. And the thing is, most days I'm teaching, say, eight hours minus lunch, minus breaks. So, yeah, I have to do then some like email before that and after that. I have to deal with accounting. I have to deal with like I write my newsletter. I'm writing a book. So I, I tend to keep myself more busy. I'm definitely not working 40 hours a week. Um, so let's call it 50, 60 hours a week. But that's still, believe it or not, less than it was before. And if a client calls me and says, we're canceling a course, I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> like, like, so I have the day to catch up on stuff. I have the day to spend with family. Um, and I'm around, I'm just around way more than I used to be. Partly mm -hmm. also, like in that sense, I hate to say it, but the pandemic's been very good for me in that my work has continued, it's continued online. And no, online teaching is not as good as in-person teaching, um, but it's been good enough. And it means that I can be home and I can be around. When I was on site for the first time in like six months or so, maybe a little less, uh, two weeks ago, my wife was like, huh, you're not home. This is kind of weird. <laughs> like we, we haven't seen that for a while. And over the next two months, I'm going to be on-site at clients, like I think two thirds of the time, which is a, a sea change. So now I have to actually like take into account, you know, commute times and that, that sort of thing. So I think my work-life balance was better in part because of the pandemic. Um, and you could make an argument that, well, if I just did like fewer of these crazy projects, like the newsletter and the book and everything, but like, I know myself well enough now, that's, that's not the way I am. I'm always trying to like find new things to fill my time and do stuff. Um, but it, it offers that a possibility, right? If I wanted to, 
Um, if I if I were that sort of personality, then I could say, oh, I'm just going to like train two weeks out of the month, and the other two weeks I'm going to relax or learn new things. Um, could be. So it sounds like there's more control over work-life balance. Like it's a um, it's a business to be in that gives you control over that, and it's not that you're forced to. Is that right? Right, right. Oh, oh I, I, I can basically choose how much or how little I want to work. If I know there are days that I want to be home, like, you know, whether, whether it's birthdays or anniversaries or holidays, or whatever, I just don't schedule them, right? Like I just say, I'm, I'm not available on those days and that's the way it is. The other thing is doing development work. People call you all the time with petty complaints and with bug reports, often <laughs> in, the same, in the same call. Um, and I just don't get that. Right, like no one is calling me saying, oh my God, the Python training, like you've got to get it working by tomorrow morning or we're dead. Like that just doesn't happen. The, the worst <laughs> case scenario is like, boy, that was terrible. Like, and that happens on occasion. Like I taught this testing course for a client like two, three years ago. They asked me to teach it for them. I learned it. I thought I was great at it. It was terrible. They thought it was terrible. They will not be asking me to do that again. Um, but no, for the most part, it, it, it's improved the work-life balance a lot. The other, the other funny thing is like, I'm, my wife's a curator. And so she typically has like worked less than I have, but also crazy hours meeting with people. And lately she's been working really, really, really crazy hours because she's got lots of projects going on. And now it's like both of us are sort of all over. And now I'm the one who's sort of more relaxed with a regular schedule who can do things. And she's sort of more crazed. Um, so it's kind of a, a, a fun twist in our relationship where I'm like, I'm going to bed. She says, oh, I got to catch up on email. <laughs> so I want to ask one last thing, um, at least in terms of, you know, what I think people listening might be interested in knowing, um, looking out. So if somebody's thinking about going into training and then, you know, getting good at it, having a good practice, what do you think their prospects are for growing it beyond just a solo operation? Like, do you see a path where if they wanted, they could bring in and train, um, you know, trainers to send out other or uh, under them uh, or other ways to grow a business like that? Like, what do you think are the prospects for turning that into some kind of larger scale business or agency? Like, what is that a reasonable thing to do? You can do that. You can do that. Um, and I think that's the natural um, instinct that most people have. Uh, which is, well, I want to make more money. I want to offer more services. So I'll do that. But there's some dangers associated with that. Danger number one is you send out an employee to be a trainer and your reputation is in their hands. And I had that a few years ago. I had an employee. Uh, it did not last with me for long because literally everything he did was just terrible. It was like really quite impressive to see how one person could mess up <laughs> on so many fronts in such a short period of time. But he went out to do some training and I got a call within like half an hour from the client saying, what the hell is going on? Like, what this guy can't teach like to save his life. Um, and so I realized then, oh, if I want to have other people go out and represent me, I've got to then vet them or I've got to go on site and watch them. I don't have that kind of time. I don't want to be spending my time to do that. And so I just decided straight out, I'm not having anyone else train for me. I mean, I also got rid of other people working for me in general, but like programming, at least you can watch over, you can have some metrics, you can do testing, you can do this and that. Like with training, you're really either there or you're putting your reputation in their hands. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, if you get really good and if you get in demand a lot, training pays so well that 
you don't like, why would you spend your time managing a business, not doing the training when you could be doing the training and making the same amount of money or more? Hmm. I mean, just, just like, like to put it in perspective, it is not a crazy thing to say that you can get, I mean, I'm not there with most clients, but you can get $10,000 a day for training, right? So let's multiply that out. You do that 10 days a month. That's $100,000 a month. That's, you know, $1.2 million a year. That's not bad for a solo practice where you're working 10 days a month, right? And you can sort of expand that in various directions of various sorts. Mm. Um, now, so what's the advantage in hiring other people other than agitation, management, and so forth? So I would say better to improve your reputation, better to improve your clients, even though that'll take time, than to risk everything on having more employees and then just be more of a commodity business. That's interesting. So, I mean, if you just do the math out for a career, if you, you know, got to that point where you're doing 10 days of training at hundred K a month, 1.2 million a year, like rather than building a business, building equity and maybe eventually selling it to be independently wealthy and retire, you could build that same amount of wealth, you know, just in the revenue from your own practice over the course of five, six years. Huh. Um, By the way, I, I only recently, like it was probably like a month or two ago, I started doing the math of like what I'm charging, which probably demonstrates what terrible business person I am. I'm like, wow, this is like better than I thought. Uh, <laughs> so like, <laughs> but like also, I, I, I mean, I've been raising my rates over the last few years and I also don't give the same rates to, to all clients. I know that American clients pay way better than Israeli clients. Um, and you know, when a country's sovereign wealth fund approaches me to do training, you can be sure they are, you know, given my highest possible rate. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. I guess, you know, we're kind of at the hour here. I want to open up a little bit of Q and A in case folks have questions, but, um, before doing that, um, and I'll grab this for the description in YouTube too, um, People want to learn more about you. Where can they go find you? So um, they go to my website at learner.co.il. That's L-E-R-N-E-R. -E -E I know the irony is thick. Uh, there are lots of teachers, I guess, in my uh, family over generations. Um, if they're interested in training, I have a newsletter about it called Trainer Weekly. That's at trainerweekly.com. You can sign up. And as I describe it there, it's about the business pedagogy and logistics of the training business. So it's all about like, everything from how you charge to what you bring in your bag to like different experiences that I've had. Um, and it goes from very serious to, you know, I don't know, not very silly, but like, you know, some, somewhat whimsical. Um, and hopefully that gives some perspective also on, on how this whole business works. Cause no one told me, like I've, I've learned all this stuff the, the, the hard way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people. Like I'm pretty active. I'm increasingly active on Twitter, um, especially about Python stuff, but not just. Uh, so I'm Ruben M. Lerner on Twitter. And just in general, I'd be very happy to hear from people. I tend to be bad and slow at answering email because I get so much of it, but I promise you, I will read it and I will respond and might, you must, just might need to be a little patient. Um, but I'm always happy to hear from people and help them about training stuff, uh, especially like, yeah. I, I, I feel very fortunate that I found something that's so much, uh, so satisfying. Like you, have the, you always hear that people go into education because it's satisfying, not because it pays the bills. And I'm like, huh, I'm actually making a great living. <laughs> and I'm really getting the satisfaction of helping people. Um, I, I feel very fortunate if I can help other people get there too, uh, I would be delighted. That's a great perspective. Um, 
So I guess for anyone on the call right now, uh, Q&A time, does anybody have questions they want to chime in with and ask that we haven't covered? I usually give this a few seconds in case people are getting back to their computer and, and uh, needing to hit unmute. Done silence. Sorry. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Do you, uh, can you unmute yourself or do you need me to do it? Oh, there you go. Hi. Uh, actually, training is one of the things that I'm trying to pursue. And I'm just thinking about how to actually how to offer, make an offering out of training. And try, when I put myself into my client's shoes, one of the objections I think of is why should it why should I hire a trainer instead of doing like video courses or just ask my people to read these tutorials or watch this YouTube video? So I think briefly you, you touched it in there, you mentioned it in the presentation, like having that that company that you just just take down and watch the people going through your courses. But how how do you how do you manage that in your in your experience? So the training industry is definitely changing. Um, there are companies like Pluralsight that, and, and O'Reilly, you know, the irony is I do training for O'Reilly as well, um, but there are companies that, so I'm like, you know, eating my own, I don't know, seed corn, whatever the, the phrase is. But um, there are definitely companies that say, we have a subscription to O'Reilly, we have a subscription to Pluralsight, so we're not gonna hire you to do introductory things. We're gonna hire you to do more advanced things. Um, but and, and, and by the way, then I come in to do an advanced class and discover that they actually know nothing. And I have to do my intro, intro class. Um, and I just, like, I did that in China a lot. Uh, so typically, like, when I would go train there, they would say, well, we don't do intro courses here, but we have invited our smartest people to take your intro, to take your advanced course. And I'd say, so how long have you been using Python? And someone would be like, oh, I, I started learning it last week because I heard I was taking this course, right? No one had any experience. So I just give them my intro course, call it advanced, and everyone's happy. It's like the most Chinese thing ever. Um, in any event, um, it's a problem. It's a problem. And what you have to, you have to put your finger on what is your added value. Typically, I'll say to people that I have a few added values. One is that I'm there to answer their questions, right? That it's interactive. And if people don't have questions, then you're right. There's no, uh, you know, there's no advantage, but they should be able to ask questions and they can't do that to a video course. Number two, I have tons of exercises. I've been stunned to discover that online courses don't have exercises. How can that be? It seems preposterous. So people say they love my video courses because I include exercises. I'm like, but everyone does, right? No, it turns out they don't. So having lots of exercises, and I would say, if they ask you how many exercises you have, say about 30% of the course. Anything 30% or more will sound like heaven to them because they want those hands-on labs and they want you to be inspecting what people are doing and be able to say, oh, it's not this, it's that. Um, and again, that's something they're not going to get from an online course. Um, and I was just talking to people now, I'm like putting together a course for next year that's going to be sort of like a, a, a boot camp for Python and data analytics. I'm going to do over a few months combining my video courses and office hours. And I said, I was talking to people about this and they said, well, there are some sort of competitors doing this, but there's no in-person stuff. And the in-person is worth a lot. So some companies are gonna be like, nope, we've got Pluralsight, not worth it. But some of them are gonna say, actually, we value the interactions, we value the labs, we value that, you know, that, that's, that's important to us, um, so we'll go for it. So it's not gonna be perfect for everyone. Uh, there's definitely, and, and you might need to start positioning your initial offers at a slightly higher end meaning not intro X topic, but advanced X topic or security for X topic 
or design patterns for X topic, something that's beyond what the intro stuff needs. And once you start teaching, I always say it takes like five to 10 times of teaching a class to really like get the kinks out. But that also reveals where people's mis like misconceptions are. And then you can sort of level the class up or down as necessary. But, uh, but I, I, I wish you like, what, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you plan to teach? Like what's your expertise in by the way? Oh, my expertise in the Dynamic stack. So I'm trying to focus on around unit testing, their practices and basically in that horizon. So it's about the idea that I have. No, that's great. Testing and best practices. I'll also say the other thing is you want to come to people with a syllabus. Um, it never fails to amaze me. A company will call me up and they'll say, we're interested in your course. I'll say, great. And they'll say, do you have a syllabus? I'll say, it's on my website. And I don't know if I'm more surprised that like, actually, I'm surprised they didn't go to my website. You're calling somebody you're like, don't, anyway, so I put all my syllabi on my website and that way I can point them to people. And then they're like, oh, you must be a serious trainer because you put it on your website because you know the barrier to putting up a text file on a website nowadays is very great. So put together your 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 syllabus and you'll figure and and that'll be a good sort of push pull with the potential clients too. Thanks, sure. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. Other questions? Anybody? Uh, I'd say if if you do, feel free to unmute yourself and and just fire away. I think I'll call it then, uh, you know, feel free as I talk in the next few seconds to unmute yourself and interrupt me if you do have questions, but um, if not, uh, I guess we can wrap it and then head over into Slack. Um, if any of you listening right now have questions that you think of async, we can ask them there. I'll also make an announcement that we're going to be starting the AMA uh, portion here soon. So. Um, uh, I just want to say before we wrap here, thanks so much for joining us. I've uh, enjoyed chatting with you. Um, Reuven and I uh, <laughs> uh, co-host a podcast, so uh, we, we talk a fair bit, but uh, it is always good to get together and chat. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, this is great fun. And it's, it's hard to stop me from talking about, uh, talking about trading. So I'm always happy to answer, answer questions about this. So great, great fun. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Thanks again. And uh, I will uh, talk to you soon.